I think it's a great uh, segue from the Senator's presentation to, uh, to Chris Edwards. Uh, Chris is our Director of Tax Policy Studies. I remember when uh, another person who I think has been serious about trying to cut spending is Rand Paul. I remember when uh, Senator Paul was elected, the first Sunday after the election, he was on the George Stephanopoulos show. And it's interesting that whenever uh, politicians go on TV and they talk about something they want to spend money on, the journalist never asks them you know, where they're going to get the money. But when someone talks about wanting to cut spending, they always drill them and say, you know, well, what, you know what are you going to cut? And uh, Stephanopoulos pulled that on Senator Paul, and he said, well, look, complete books have been written on this subject, like Downsizing Government by Chris Edwards, which I thought was a really nice compliment. Chris also gets compliments because he's a tireless worker in uh, all elements of the fiscal policy arena, and he produces every two years the fiscal report cards the fiscal report card on the nation's governor, which rates every governor in the, in the country on an A to F scale on their record on tax and spending. And it, it's kind of interesting because Chris has been known to get calls from governor's staff asking what impact this or that policy change will have on their letter grade, which is the kind of feedback loop that we, we want to have and one of the few governors that got an A two years ago actually called up and asked for a spare copy of the report that I think he wanted to frame on his wall. So uh, that's a couple of nice examples of Chris's impact. So please join me in welcoming Chris Edwards to the stage. Thanks, Peter. That uh, the governor was Paul LePage of Maine, who was uh, a real small government spending cutting kind of a guy. He had a, a framed picture of it, the Cato report card right up on the, on the wall of his uh, office. He was very proud of his, uh, his A grade. I'm going to uh, actually, uh, my talk dovetails very well, I think, with Senator uh, Graham's. Uh, my main focus at Cato is on cutting government spending. I have not had much success. Uh, recently on that uh, front, uh, President Trump uh, proposed a new federal budget uh, two weeks ago. It's his fourth uh, budget. Spending has risen 21% under President Trump, unfortunately. The Democrats running for president, of course, want to spend even more money. Uh, I'm going to talk about wealth inequality. And uh, the connection here is that Democrats like uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are using the wealth inequality issue as kind of a bludgeon to expand federal government spending and social programs. Uh, but as I will discuss, an expansion in federal government programs would increase wealth inequality. It wouldn't uh, reduce it. So in case you hadn't noticed, there is a, a war on wealth going on uh, in the United States. Uh, these are some uh, recent quotes from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, the, the common uh, thread in a lot of what they have to say is that it, we have a zero-sum economy and that all uh, wealth at the top is sort of ill-gotten. Uh, the, the first quote there, Bernie Sanders, you probably heard this one, he said, uh, there should be no billionaires, which, you know, when you think about it, you know, Bernie Sanders is a millionaire, he owns three homes, uh, he's never created a, a job in his life, he's uh, mooched off uh, uh, taxpayers for four decades now with his government salary, but he's okay. Uh, you know, what he's doing is apparently uh, good for society. But then Michael Bloomberg, a billionaire who created, uh, you know, a very innovative uh, high-tech and information company, 
created tens of thousands of jobs. Uh, he's a billionaire, so there's something wrong and unethical about him. Well, of course, that's, that's uh, ridiculous. So this, uh, this goes uh, directly to what Senator Graham uh, was talking about. Uh, part of the debate here is a debate on the data, on income and wealth and inequality. This table is from an Urban Institute study. The Urban Institute uh, is a liberal Washington think tank. This researcher put together six different expert estimates of how much median income changed in America from 70, 1979 to 2014, a 35-year period. How much has the middle workers' income uh, changed? At one end, you've got uh, our, uh, uh, researchers finding that uh, incomes have actually dropped by 8%. And at the other end, you've got researchers finding uh, that income has risen 51%. I think the 51% uh, figure is more accurate. I think that uh, average Americans are doing much better in recent uh, decades. The problem is, of course, I think that Senator Graham touched on that, you know, the, the media is sort of relentlessly negative here, um, um, spinning narratives about how uh, average workers are losing out. So I don't think that's cor uh, correct, and part of our job at Cato uh, is to correct the record on these uh, statistics. So this chart shows you uh, the top 1% share of uh, income. This is a measure of income inequality. Has income inequality increased or decreased uh, over recent decades? The chart goes all the way back to 1960. Now the top red line here is from three French economists, Piketty, Sayers, uh, and Zuckman. Uh, these folks have dominated the discussion uh, over the last decade or so on income uh, inequality. If you read a story in the New York Times or the Washington Post or many other places, they're probably using data from these three French economists. Their basic story is, is that income inequality has risen, the top 1% share are grabbing uh, all the money. Uh, I think that data is wrong. Uh, a decade or so ago, Cato's Alan Reynolds started writing about how the data from these economists uh, is really flaky, and uh, he was absolutely right, and more and more academic papers are coming out now showing that the data from these uh, three French economists uh, is incorrect. Uh, an expert study last year by these economists, Otten and Splinter, find, in fact, that the top 1% share of after-tax income in America has been roughly flat over the last half century. Uh, I, uh, I often joke uh, now that the, the data by these three, three French economists, you know, France had the reign of terror in the 1790s. These uh, three French economists have the reign of error with their data. Uh, <laughs> you see these errors uh, everywhere in the popular media, so we're trying to, uh, we're trying to fight that uh, reign of error. This uh, is a similar chart. It shows you the top 1% share of wealth in the United States. It goes back a century here. Uh, the, the three French economists, they have this basic narrative that, you know, a century ago we had the Gilded Age, uh, the mid-20th century there was more equality, and now we have another Gilded Age uh, in America. Their data is uh, incorrect, and there's been a number of uh, much better studies now uh, on this. Uh, the bottom green line uh, is a much better study that came out last year. They've re-estimated uh, the, the, uh, the data. So there has been a modest increase in wealth inequality. That's kind of my uh, general view looking at uh, all these studies. But I think, and I'm going to argue, that it's mainly based on entrepreneurs and innovation, uh, innovations that are benefiting everyone and raising all boats uh, in the economy. So here's, a, uh, here's uh, something that Elizabeth Warren said a couple months ago. She said, quote, 
the top 0.1% of families now have nearly the same amount of wealth as the bottom 90% of families combined. Meanwhile, for everyone else, opportunity is slipping away. So opportunity is certainly slipping away in her presidential campaign. Uh, I think her, uh, like I said about her and uh, Senator Saunders, they have this, they have this uh, zero-sum view of the world that uh, uh, money earned at the top somehow takes away from everyone else. It isn't true because the vast majority of wealth held at the top is actually business assets. It's not personal assets. I think people like Sanders and Warren have this view that people at the top, you know, they own luxury yachts and large homes, uh, personal assets. The reality is, is that the vast uh, majority of wealth at the top, uh, if you drill into the data on this chart here, 90% of the wealth of the top 0.1% wealthiest Americans is actually business assets. So just think of Jeff Bezos, richest man in America. His wealth is over $100 billion. The vast majority of that wealth is his 15% or so ownership share of Amazon, a company he built that he founded in his garage back in 1994. Uh, the assets of Amazon are spread across the country. They employ 600,000 uh, Americans. So Jeff Bezos' wealth is creating opportunities for 600,000 uh, Americans. To bring a Florida angle uh, in on this, uh, I'm not an expert. Probably many uh, of you are, are more experts uh, than me on Henry Flagler. Flagler was the co-founder of Standard Oil with Rockefeller back in the 19th century. He became immensely wealthy uh, from his... Uh, uh, his ownership and management of, of Standard Oil. So what did Flagler do with his money? He didn't buy gold bars and put them in a safe and sort of keep his money privately. Uh, he spent the last 30 years of his life uh, essentially building the infrastructure on the east coast of Florida. Uh, the railroad, hotels, hospitals, schools. Uh, so wealthy people, the main thing they do with their money is th are things that are socially productive and useful for the rest of us. And to go back to Bernie Saunders, uh, Sanders for a minute, you know, Sanders, is, and this shows you the difference between the sort of people who are a little bit wealthy and the people who are very wealthy. Much of Sanders' wealth is actually in his three homes that he owns that are personal assets. Jeff Bezos, the vast majority of his wealth are assets that are out there in, in the economy being productive and beneficial for everyone. So my uh, advice for Bernie Sanders is to sell two of his homes and then use the money to maybe invest in startup companies uh, to help the broader economy. That's what I think he should do uh, going ahead. So what are the causes of wealth uh, inequality? Uh, Warren and Sanders think that all top wealth is ill-gotten. Um, but, you know, the, the uh, wealth inequality has multiple causes, uh, some good and some bad. I'm going to go through uh, a good reason for wealth inequality, then some bad reasons for it. So a good reason for wealth inequality uh, is capitalism uh, in the most sort of positive sense. Uh, basically, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, you know, starting businesses and innovating uh, and raising uh, all boats. 70% of the wealthiest Americans now have self-made wealth. They are entrepreneurs, uh, not inherited wealth. If you look in American history, and many of you know this, uh, many of the greatest, uh, uh, most wealthy uh, uh, Americans and greatest business people got rich by slashing prices uh, for the poor. Henry Ford is most famous in this regard. 
He introduced his Model T in 1908, and he was absolutely determined to continuously pushing the price of his Model uh, T down. I think it started at $850, and he eventually pushed it down to under $300. He was determined to, uh, so that more people could uh, enjoy his uh, product. Sam Walton, of course, became the richest man in America by slashing prices at his Walmart stores. Uh, Today, the internet dominates retail, but around 15 or 20 years ago, there was a lot of concern about Walmart's effect on the economy, and there's a bunch of uh, studies done at the time. Uh, they found that Walmart single-handedly saved the average U.S. household by about $2,000 a year and pushed down U.S. grocery prices by about 10%, which is a pretty remarkable achievement. So Walton uh, became rich by slashing prices for the poor. There's a recent uh, interesting uh, example of this that uh, the Wall Street Journal has written up a couple times. Uh, the Aldi grocery store that's spreading across uh, America, and I, I know there's uh, locations in Florida here, is a deep discount grocery store that's even undercutting Walmart, which is remarkable. So Aldi is owned by one of the richest families in Europe. This family got rich by slashing prices for the poor. And I think we see a lot of that in today's economy, uh, particularly the, the tech economy. Someone mentioned Airbnb. Uh, Airbnb, the founders got rich by holding down uh, prices uh, for hotels, and that's a good thing. And of course, you see that with many other high-tech startups uh, these days. So uh, I think that all this is a win-win for the economy. Uh, wealth is a positive something, not the negative something that Bernie Sanders often claims. Um, so that's the good reason for wealth inequality, but there are some bad reasons for wealth inequality. One of them is corruption. Uh, Sanders and Warren and other Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians often complain about cronyism or, or crony capitalism, uh, corruption, and they're absolutely right. At the Cato Institute, uh, we write study after study uh, criticizing cronyist programs and arguing that they ought to be repealed. So. On, with cronyism, I, I'm with uh, uh, Mr. Sanders and, uh, and, and uh, Warren on that. One of the ironies, though, is that Sanders and Warren and other Democrats and some Republicans, they want bigger government to solve the inequality program, but I think that would lead to more corruption uh, and more cronyism, uh, not less. So a last uh, a cause of wealth inequality, which I think is often overlooked in the discussion, uh, is crowding out. Crowding out is a wonky economist word that just means displacement. As the welfare state has grown bigger, uh, as Social Security and Medicare and unemployment insurance and many other programs have grown bigger, it has displaced more and more middle class uh, savings or wealth. So if you think about the top, the top 1%, their assets are mainly business assets. But for the middle class, you know, the assets are how much they basically save for their retirement and other contingencies in life. As the welfare state has grown, people are saving less, and that has tended to push up these uh, wealth inequality statistics. Uh, interestingly, studies show that some of the countries like Sweden and Denmark with the biggest welfare states have actually the least middle class savings. So you can see that displacement uh, happening. And again, there's an irony here that you know, Warren and Sanders and, and others on the left want to expand the welfare state to supposedly solve the inequality problem, but I think it would make it worse by displacing more private sector savings. 
So people on the left uh, push the idea that wealth inequality causes poverty or they conflate the two ideas, uh, but wealth inequality and poverty are very different things and they're, they're different things and there's really no relationship and that's what I tried to, to show in this uh, chart here. On the horizontal axis, uh, it shows uh, the level of inequality in a country. There's 167 blue dots there, those are countries. Uh, on the vertical axis is standard of living or uh, income per capita. There's basically no relationship here. You've got rich countries uh, that have high wealth inequality, others with, with low wealth inequality, poor countries with high uh, or low wealth inequality. There are some patterns here because there's these different causes to wealth inequality. So Denmark and Sweden are up on the top right-hand side there. Uh, they're wealthy countries, uh, but they have big welfare states, which I think causes their wealth inequality. Uh, then down at the bottom right, You've got Kazakhstan, Egypt, and Ukraine. They have the highest wealth inequality in the world and not in, uh, 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 for the same reason, uh, they, they're some of the most corrupt countries in the world. There are indices of corruption. Uh, those countries are, are the most corrupt in the world and that uh, appears to cause their high level of wealth inequality. Uh, Sanders wants more equality. Uh, he might think about moving to Australia uh, the problem for him, though, is Australia is a very capitalist country with a smaller government than uh, United States now. Uh, or he may think about moving to Ethiopia, but Ethiopia, they've got a lot of equality, but it's an equality of poverty. So my point here is that wealth inequality by itself, it doesn't tell you anything. Uh, it, it doesn't tell you anything useful. We should be worried about poverty, uh, but not inequality. And the news on poverty is very good, as I think uh, Peter uh, touched on. Uh, we've got a, a website at Cato, humanprogress.org, uh, that tells a lot of the good news about the US and the world economy that the media uh, doesn't uh, tell us. Uh, these are two, uh, two uh, uh, items that have, have gotten much better uh, in the world over the last few decades. This is, it shows you the percent of the world's population since 1980 uh, that is in severe poverty has plunged from 40% to just 10% today, and the share of the world's population that is illiterate has also uh, plunged. So there is a very good news, uh, good news story here about the world economy that I think is often uh, overlooked. So I've argued that in market economies, um, wealth at the top uh, is mainly a good thing because it is mainly generated by entrepreneurs who are lifting all boats. Of course, a lot of the Democrats, they don't see it that way. They think that uh, all wealth at the top is sort of ill-gotten, and because of that, they want to impose a wealth tax uh, and uh, to, to hammer all wealth at the top, at the top because they, they don't think it's uh, legitimate. Uh, I don't have uh, time today to go into this. I've got uh, lots of writings at the Cato uh, website on, on wealth taxes and why they're really a terrible idea. You know, the idea of a wealth tax is that the government would impose an annual tax on everything you own. Your house, your financial assets, your business assets, your pension plan, your jewelry, your artwork, the whole uh, sort of kit and caboodle. That's the basic idea of a wealth tax. Uh, over a dozen European countries used to have these taxes in place and what would happen uh, in reality is that there'd be all kinds of loopholes and exemptions. I mean, one sort of funny example is that the French exempted wine collections uh, from their wealth tax. So because of that, of course, wealthy people, they put all their money uh, into these exempt items like wine collections. So uh, these wealth taxes are a terrible idea. They'd end up uh, creating a lot of lobbying. Uh, there'd be loopholes and evasion and they would end up raising uh, little money. 
So the only uh, good news here is that I think even if a Warren or a, a Sanders became president, I think these taxes are so unworkable that I don't, I don't think that they would pass through, uh, such a, a plan would actually pass through and get enacted uh, in Congress. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is, is that all these Democratic candidates have uh, a whole slew of tax hiking ideas. Uh, even uh, someone raised, uh, someone mentioned Bloomberg, even Bloomberg and Biden and all the other candidates want to hike the top capital gains tax rate from 24% up to 40%. I think that would be a terrible mistake. I think it would really hammer Silicon Valley and America's entrepreneurial and startup culture. Uh, I don't know who's giving these candidates advice, but there's a really a lot of bad tax uh, ideas uh, out there today. Which leads to my last slide um, that, you know, there is a giant tax threat uh, in front of us here. Uh, this is the current 10-year uh, projections uh, for U.S. Uh, government spending uh, and revenues. The gap between the spending blue line there and the red line is the annual deficit. The deficit now is over trillion dollars uh, a year and rising. That is going to create great upward pressure on taxes, unfortunately. Uh, Republicans and Democrats these days uh, keep proposing new spending plans, which is uh, really uh, is really unfortunate. I mean, our job at Cato is to push back on all of this. We write essay after essay uh, criticizing these spending programs. And to build on something Senator Graham said, you know, he said that uh, you know bigger he wouldn't want bigger government even if it was free. And he touched on the idea that. You know, spending is not uh, bad just because it creates deficits. And we don't have to deal with deficits. Uh, we shouldn't cut spending just sort of as like taking bad tasting medicine to solve uh, a flu or something. Uh, we need to cut spending because spending programs themselves are harmful for microeconomic reasons. As the senator said, each and every spending program creates these sort of behavioral responses uh, by people, which creates damage. And a classic program here, I touch, a classic example I touched on, Social Security, the largest federal program, it undermines personal savings. The bigger Social Security gets, the less incentive people have uh, to save for themselves and create their own financial security. So all these uh, government spending programs in my view, uh, are harmful and damaging uh, at a microeconomic level. And for that reason, we ought to uh, cut and restrain them. And that's the message I try to, uh, to get out of my uh, writings at Cato. So I think I'm going to uh, end there just to, you know, to, to conclude. You know, I think wealth inequality uh, is, is not a useful metric. I think Democrats are just using it as a wedge to try to expand the government. And I think you know, expanding government would be bad, not only because it would lead to higher deficits, but because the spending itself would be harmful to the economy. Uh, thank you very much. I think we have time for a few questions. It's microphone down here. Yeah. Thank you for the comments. How strong do you think is the effect of our state schools, also known as public education, uh, in creating the, the gap in wealth, but also in making it difficult uh, for the people who came up through that system to understand what socialism and all the other isms mean? Well, I mean, as, as, as I think you all know, and I'm, 
uh, Cato talks about all the time. There is a big problem with our school system. I've got two uh, girls in high school, and I see it all the time. Uh, they actually, they're, they're, they're twins. They're both in grade 11. They just completed a, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, a survey of the Industrial Revolution, and uh, something I know quite a bit about. And the messages they're getting about the Industrial Revolution, uh, Peter mentioned that, uh, or sorry, David mentioned that, you know, the Industrial Revolution was this remarkable era that led to vast increases in income and wealth across the board. That's not the message my, my kids are getting in high school. Uh, they're getting uh, messages that it was all negative and, and bleak and damaging and children in minds and all of that. Uh, it's really unfortunate, uh, and uh, you know, school choice is part of the solution there. But uh, you know, there is a broader uh, problem with sort of general ignorance about our, our, our history and where we came from, and uh, the good news about markets that we're trying to spread at Cato. Yeah, down over here. Uh, I remember Milton Friedman used to say, "Anything you subsidize, you get more of," and I assume right. you'd agree with that. But uh, more importantly, you were mentioning Piketty. And I'm wondering what your take is on MMT, or modern monetary theory. Right. Uh, I think uh, it strikes me as crazy. I'm not, I'm not an expert enough to have looked into it in detail. Uh, it's sort of uh, like taking the Keynesian idea and sort of cranking it, uh, you know, and multiplying it many times over. Uh, ultimately, it seems to me that, you know, MMT has the idea that, you know, spending is somehow free, but ultimately spending, government spending is taking resources and you're transferring resources from the private sector to the government sector. That's ultimately, you have to look under the, the monetary stuff, it's just kind of a, uh, a smoke screen or a shield at what's going on underneath with real resources. I mean, an example of this I always, uh, you know, I think about is, um, you know, if the government expanded defense spending, um, it may or may not be justified based on our defense needs, but it would take some of the smartest and uh, best engineers in our society from the private commercial production of, let's say, uh, jets, uh, you know, commercial jets, to uh, military jets. So it would be a negative impact on the economy just because of the movement of real resources. So uh, that's how I try to think about the economy. I think the monetary stuff is, is sort of a smokescreen for, for um, changes uh, that can happen underneath with real resources. A question at the back? You don't have to go abroad for wealth taxes. In most of our states, if you studied under an old enough professor, you learned that our property taxes used right. to include personal property as well as real property. They included bank accounts. When the tax date came due, we could watch the flow of funds from one central reserve area to another. They used to include all inventories in business. You used to have to list your personal property. They're kind of left over in cars and boats, but we, many of our states had comprehensive property taxes that included all your assets. And we abandoned them over time because you could not administer them. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. We do have uh, 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 we do have wealth taxes in the United States, and there are local uh, property taxes. There are some good features of property taxes, though, that make them different than the European-style uh, wealth tax that, in, in theory, are supposed to cover all wealth. Uh, wealth in homes uh, is uh, easy for the government uh, to assess. Uh, it's hard; they're harder to avoid, harder to cheat on. And so there's less there's less distortion actually. The the other the other thing is that they're you know they're imposed by local governments, which is a much better thing than a new national uh, wealth tax. 
Um, I like the idea of each of the three levels of government being like a layer cake with their own source of revenue. So traditionally, you know, local governments would be uh, funded by local property taxes that would fund local schools. States would be funded by, say, sales taxes that you know, would fund state functions. And the federal government would have a separate funding source just for truly uh, national purposes. So uh, I think wealth taxes in Europe uh, were extremely uh, damaging. Uh, but I don't, I don't have the same view of the local property tax in the United States. There are, there are I, I would say this, there's a lot of distortions with property tax. So, just to give you one example, property taxes should be uh, equally applied to all uh, real assets at the same rate. Uh, in the United States, now, many states have these extremely complex property taxes. They apply different rates to commercial, industrial uh, assets, which makes no sense. There's all kinds of exemptions for different sorts of people and different businesses. The states use local property taxes to you know, lure Amazon and that sort of stuff. There's lots of problems with a property tax, but I guess I, I would say that in theory, they should be a simple and fairly efficient tax source. Okay.